0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big
1: picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour. Rob Ridge, with you afternoons on 770 CHQR. So cannabis has been legal in Canada for a while now. And, uh, you know, the sky hasn't fallen. And I think, you know, for the most part, we've all kind of moved on. It's no big deal anymore. Now, I get that that's not the case in every country around the world. But should we care whether athletes are using cannabis? Seems to me the whole point of having a list of banned substances is to ensure that athletes aren't using performance-enhancing drugs. I don't think anybody's going to make a credible or serious case that cannabis would be a performance-enhancing drug. But it was enough to uh, potentially sideline Shikari Richardson from these Olympics, the United States Anti-Doping Agency, penalized Richardson with a 30-day suspension and disqualified her win in the 100-meter dash of the U.S. Olympic trials last month. Because she tested positive for cannabis. She's also been left off the US relay list. So, that positive test is going to keep her from competing, not just in the 100 meter dash, but it looks like the Olympics altogether. Now, the US uh, Olympic Committee is a signatory to the World Anti Doping Agency, and the uh, agency still has cannabis on its list of prohibited substances. This just doesn't make sense. Well, someone who knows full well all the ins and outs of this, and I think we recall what happened with him at the 1998 Winter Olympics in Nagano, Japan, where he was uh, awarded the gold medal for Canada in snowboarding, had it taken away only to be given back to him on appeal. Ross Revliati, gold medal snowboarder, cannabis entrepreneur. is the founder and CEO of Ross's Gold, more at ross-gold.com. Ross Rebliati, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me, Rob. I mean, how crazy does it seem? Here we are now in 2021, and we're still having these these conversations. It feels like we haven't moved on from 1998,
2: have we? It seems that way in, in, in a couple of different ways. Um, on the other hand, you know, we have made progress in Canada, and, um, you know, WADA did take cbd off the list of banned substances so that's uh that was positive and you know since the uh inclusion of thc in the summer of 98 after my experience they call it the rebliati rule now i i've heard um they've raised that level uh by over a thousand percent so it's um you know there has been some progress there and you know hopefully you know this is a catalyst for for further progress i think what's holding you know the whole thing back is the schedule one that the uh, united states keeps um cannabis on and um that's really preventing and of course preventing a federal law in favor of canada uh, cannabis mm-hmm. So those are those are the two main factors that we're still dealing with this and prohibition around the world because as we know there's a you know a, a coalition of countries that follow U.S. policy, and so this is this is where we're at now and, and I understand Biden's come out and publicly said that, uh, you know maybe the rules don't have to be this way and um, Chuck Schumer uh, last week rolled out uh, some kind of a plan to potentially federal, federally legalized cannabis in, in the United States and, in some way. So we'll see what happens.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. Just uh, the other day on, on his popular podcast, it was Joe Rogan who called uh, Shakara's suspension 100% horse bleep. So it, it's getting a lot of attention. I think a lot of people are, are rallying behind Shakara. You were one of the first to, to speak up publicly about this. And, I mean, you're in a position, obviously, where you know you can really empathize with what she's going through.
2: Yeah, this is a tough position to find yourself in uh any level of your career but especially you know Shakari. this is you know i'm not sure but potentially the first time she's been to the olympics she's 21 uh you know she wasn't even around back in 98 you know when this happened to me so this could be news to her actually that you know cannabis has this um history at the olympics she might not have realized you know where you know she, she was going to place herself in Olympic cannabis history, um, but it's a tough, you know, situation. It's hard uh, on a psychological level. Of course, she she lost her mother already. Um, you know she's at the top of her career and and potentially devastated that she's not going to be competing at the olympics and she made that choice herself willingly she's not disputing anything to do with the reprimand or sanctions whatsoever um this was the safest choice that she could come up with and i have to agree with her um it was responsible of her to to use cannabis and um in light of a, a lot of ways people to deal with things nowadays uh, you know it was a, it was a pretty smart move um, you know putting in perspective you know the Olympics um, for some people it might be tough you know as yeah. a spectator or a fan but for somebody who lives and breathes it since you know track and field is something that you do since you know you're a little kid you know the novelty is not quite the same for athletes that live and breathe the Olympics the way it is for the fans
1: Look, let's be clear. I mean, there are substances that are on that that list of banned substances because they can be stimulants or performing enhancing drugs. Those kinds of uh, those kinds of things. So, in no sense is, does cannabis belong in that category? Does it?
2: Not in the traditional sense, like, like you right. say, um, no, and you're not going to find athletes using cannabis or trying to use cannabis anywhere near a, a competition or um, especially at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know cannabis just just doesn't work that way it's more something that athletes would would use in the off season or at home doing uh, their cross training or dryland training, and just in those moments of where they need to sort of gather themselves and and meditate i mean it would be nice for athletes to be allowed to use cannabis on a regular basis so that they don't have to go off um you know which effectively is is a vitamin that you have a system for in your body called an endocannabinoid system that since prohibition has been deficient and leads to depression and all kinds of you know things just like any vitamin with, if you have a deficiency in B12, for example, can be a serious thing. And, um, you know, so luckily cannabis isn't addictive, and that's kind of what lends itself to its uh, use and safety. And, um, you know, the numbers really speak for themselves. They are really, um, you know, speak in favor of, you know, the wide, more widely used cannabis than what we see now.
1: Yeah. The the hypocrisy, too. I mean, you know, and and I I saw a quote from you the other day pointing out, I mean, you got beer gardens in the Athletes Village, you know, Mm -hmm. we just saw... The Tampa Bay Lightning celebrating their their Stanley Cup victory you know they're drinking alcohol out of the Stanley Cup. we saw one of their players shirtless you know drinking beer at a press conference and, and we accept this or even celebrate this to some extent in sports and yet we, we turn around and punish athletes for choosing to use cannabis that, that that seems really hypocritical, doesn't it?
2: It is hypocritical and it's part of the stereotype and stigma that cannabis carries with it and which is the, the sole reason why it's on the list of banned substances as you've mentioned. It's not a performance-enhancing in the traditional sense. I could argue why you would want to use it, but we can get to that later. Um, you know, the fact that it's on the list of banned substances only serves corporate interests um, and exists. The fact that prohibition exists in the first place is, is, is racism. The worst possible reason to have something like cannabis uh, under prohibition. You know, I don't know what you know the education level is of, of the average person out there but um you know when the the slaves in america were freed that's when they created prohibition against cannabis to control that black population and um we see it today in in the penitentiaries and how it's being used um you know to racially profile people and the fact that Shakari is a, a black woman um accentuates this this travesty and um you know the Olympics should be ashamed of themselves. The IOC should be ashamed of themselves for including cannabis for any reason, let alone corporate interests and, and um, you know, just following along with the old boys' club and and um you know, the whole racist nature of it.
1: Yeah. In terms of athletes, though, and the approach to cannabis, I mean, it, it clearly hasn't stopped Shikari Richardson from, from excelling in, in her sport. It obviously didn't stop you from, ex, ex, you know, excelling in your sport. So, how, I mean, how would you advise athletes to, to approach this?
2: Well, you know, the rules are the rules. So, the, the basically, like, I even stopped, you know, using cannabis. You know, the the Olympic criteria. We thought cannabis was on the list of banned substances, and and only found out that it wasn't after I lost two appeals and ended up in the court of arbitration. But the you know the fact is that it is now on the list of banned substances, and for the most part, ninety nine percent of the athletes are going to want to meet that criteria, especially when it comes to cannabis. It's so easy to not use; it's not addictive. Um, but you know whether it. Obviously, it shouldn't be on the list of banned substances. So, well, that's we really what I mean. To...
1: If if it's taken off the list, can can athletes use it responsibly, or is it is it something that athletes should steer clear of?
2: No, they should they should absolutely be using cannabis in every which way, and you know, the, you know that works for them. That's the the benefit of cannabis is, um, you know, you can. Microdosing is is a popular thing for people who are using vape cartridges and, and, uh, you know, edibles. Uh, Topical creams infused with CBD and THC are super effective for muscle cramps and and post-op surgery and, uh, you know, all the aches and pains that you would use A535 for. um, But without the uh, pharmaceutical painkillers that just mask injuries. And so, you know, of course, athletes should be allowed to use cannabis and whether or not it's legal in every country is irrelevant. Um, you know, the, I think the IOC are, are behind uh, the LGTBQ, uh, you know, gay rights and, and all the rest of it. And, and, you know, that's clearly not accepted in every country in the world. But the IOC gets behind it because that's the right, right. thing to do. Um, and in the case of cannabis it's the right thing to do morally to take it off the list of banned substances it it's a, it's based in racism and corporate interests, and uh that's it
1: yeah i think so i mean it just if nothing else there's no logic to it right it's it's just completely illogical so
2: well the logic we'll see is corporate yeah. interest yeah. well and that's the logic that's the reason yeah. it's there
1: well, it's interesting because it seemed as though in the last Olympics they'd moved away from testing for cannabis, which seemed to indicate maybe things were trending in the right direction. Now, now we get this controversy. I mean, I don't know, where, where do you think we'll be at four years from now?
2: So we had that in Rio, and um, they decided not to test. So this wasn't something that the Tokyo Olympics uh, imposed upon themselves. This is something that, was, that came from within the U.S. team. And like I said before, it all has to do with corporate interests and team sponsors and um, the whole image of the U.S. track team, you know, as far as they're concerned. You know, if they would say, oh, Shikari, you know, that's too bad. We're going to use discretion in, in this case, which they're allowed to do. Um, and, uh, you could argue cultural reasons, um, because cannabis is so much more part of our, our culture here in North America than, than ever before that, um, you know, her choice was to use cannabis instead of alcohol or some other, you know, Mm -hmm. method. And, um, she knew that she was putting her spot on the team in jeopardy and did it anyway. And that shows a high level of cognition and, and intelligence, Um, that this was the best thing for her in in her darkest moment. Um, So this is an internal thing from the U.S. They even decided not to bring her at all to the Olympics, even though she would have um, been through her one-month suspension by the time the relay event occurred in Tokyo. And so she's going to be staying home but she'll be back and she'll be back even stronger and, and hopefully she can find some courage, you know, from within and that her sponsors like Nike double down and um, you know, bump her up to the you know, champion status.
1: We'll see where it goes from here. Uh, as mentioned Ross goldcom dot com is the website. Ross Rebliati, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate your insight Appreciate on all this. Thanks, Rob. All the best to you. There you go. That is uh, Ross Reboliati won a gold medal for Canada at the 1998 Winter Olympics in snowboarding. And yeah, as he said, I mean, they kind of call it the Reboliati rule. He had the, the, the gold medal awarded to him. Then he tested positive for cannabis. They took the gold medal away from him. And then uh, on appeal, he won it back because, so, well, this isn't on the list of banned substances. How can you take it away his gold medal? So they gave it back to him and they said, well, now we're going to put it on the list. And here we are. So today is uh, what they're calling Freedom Day in the UK. I mean, some concern, I guess, with uh, where the level of infections are at. But the U.S. or rather the UK is moving to end its health restrictions. But with some caveats, uh, the British uh, vaccines minister, Nadim Zawawi, announcing today that there will be a requirement for proof of vaccination for those attending nightclubs and other large uh, gatherings and venues.
3: Getting vaccinated is the best way to ensure you can travel as freely as possible. Vaccination also holds the key for doing the things we love here at home, Mr Speaker. We are supporting the safe reopening of large crowded settings, such as nightclubs, as we saw last night, and music uh, venues, with the use of the NHS COVID pass as a condition of entry to reduce the risks of transmission.
1: Okay, so this is often referred to as a vaccine passport, and that can mean different things, but essentially it's the idea that there is a requirement for proof of vaccination for certain activities and events. Israel had uh, taken this approach with its Green Pass system, and in fact, they've reinstated that, as they've seen a a resurgent cases as well. There's been some talk of this approach in Canada, but we do have laws that pertain to privacy, medical records, etc., so what kind of legal issues arise when it comes to the approach of mandating proof of vaccination for certain things? And do businesses have the freedom on their own to implement those kinds of requirements for customers or those attending certain events or venues? It's an interesting report from the C.D. Howe Institute. Vaccines, ins and outs an exploration of the legal issues raised by vaccine passports. Joining us to talk more about it is one of the authors uh, of this paper. Uh, Brian Thomas is a senior research associate and adjunct professor at the Center for Health, Law, Policy, and Ethics at the University of Ottawa. org. by the way, can read this report for yourself. Uh, professor Thomas, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Thanks. Good to be here.
1: So in in the context of, of this report, as I was alluding to, I mean, vaccine passport is is kind of a phrase that means a lot of things. What what, what do you take it to mean, or at least in the context of this conversation?
0: yeah so at a kind of basic level, as you kind of explained in the intro, the concept is just that we would use vaccine passports. We would issue vaccine passports to people who have received uh, both doses of the vaccine or whose vaccines are up to date you know in the future if there's booster shots required, then they would cover that as well um and so that this would and these passports could be required at the gates of entry for large public events indoor events. Um, and so the purpose is just to allow us to reopen these things, these venues that have been locked down for all this time, uh, reopen them safely without having uh, unvaccinated people circulating amongst each other and uh, transmitting the disease. And of course, a sort of spin-off benefit of this is that hopefully this would provide an incentive for people to get vaccinated who haven't been vaccinated yet.
1: Right. And I think that that is part of the hope. I know there are some who almost equate this to mandating vaccines, but there's a big difference, isn't there, between, you know, saying vaccines are mandatory and saying that vaccines are required for certain activities.
0: There's absolutely a difference. Yes. And it's a difference that really matters to the ethics and the law of this question. Right. It would would be clearly unethical and clearly contrary to Canadian law for us to force people to be vaccinated. But it's um, but. Giving people the freedom to choose whether or not to whether to be vaccinated is not the same as saying that there will be no consequences of that choice and so uh, in all sorts of areas of our law we allow people to we allow for example that students who haven't been vaccinated cannot attend public schools or cannot cannot attend schools uh, we in some hospitals people are required to um, be vaccinated during influenza outbreaks. Um, and there's nothing illegal about that. It's, we right. sort of recognize that the charter and other human rights protections do not protect everything down to your right to go to a Louis Theater or your right to dining at a restaurant and so on. Um, so yeah, it's an important distinction you're making.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, there are privacy laws that, that will come into play, I would imagine, in terms of, you know, the information itself or what venues or businesses would do with that information. But I think more broadly in this paper sort of goes through where there's other potential issues. I mean, even basic charter rights, um, you know, like mobility rights, rights to liberty and security of the person, freedom of religion and conscience. So there are a lot of potential issues that come into play here, aren't there?
0: There absolutely are. Yes, um, so, one of our sort of objectives with the paper was to dig a little deeper with some of these topics. So, you, you I think, your premier has said uh, that the that the privacy considerations that, that a vaccine passport system would be contrary to your health information privacy law. So, we wanted to kind of dig into those questions and ask, and sort of ask in a more in depth way. You know, is our vaccine passports really? Uh, impermissible under Canadian law. and For the most part, we're we're sort of skeptical of those arguments. I don't think the privacy argument is a knockdown one. I think that, um, as we explained in the paper, I think that vaccine passports can be designed and regulated in a way that's compliant with health information privacy laws. Uh, and likewise, I think that accommodations can be made for religious freedom, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. There are measures we could take. For example, if, if you wanted to have vaccine passports, a requirement for restaurants, you could have um, accommodations such as allowing people who have received a recent negative test result could be allowed to enter. Or people who people could dine outside who haven't been vaccinated. So there are right. those accommodations
1: available. Yeah, isn't it? Because we actually uh, interviewed Alberta's Information and Privacy Commissioner a few weeks ago about this. And her approach is that, you know, it, it is going to depend that, you know, in terms of that requirement, there needs to be a, a, a solid justification for why it exists and, and B, there needs to be some sort of protocol in place for how the information is going to be handled. So to say blanket across the board it wouldn't fly or blanket across the board would be fine at every circumstance, it is going to depend. Would, would you uh, agree with that?
0: I absolutely agree with that. And I think that sort of that kind of logic of, I mean, that that logic of proportionality and you know, of, of trying to sort of tailor public health measures to the sort of the need and urgency of the public health issue in this case of pandemic. That, that should permeate all of our thinking on, on all points of law and all these sort of human rights considerations and privacy considerations. And so anyone who's giving you a quick answer on these questions is, is really doing a disservice, I think, because we need to think deep, deeply about them because there are trade-offs and there are costs and benefits on both sides of the ledger that we need to take very seriously.
1: How unique is this situation, though? I mean, you know, part of this, this paper explores where there's some, some precedent from you know previous Supreme Court decisions. But, I mean, we haven't really dealt with, with something like this, have we?
0: That's true, yeah, I mean, I mean, we haven't dealt with that, certainly with a, a lockdown that's gone on or sort of restrictions on mobility and so on that have gone on as long as this. Yeah. Uh, we ha- There's some precedent for vaccination passports for yellow fever and so on, but not in the kind of ubiquitous application that we're contemplating now with, um, you know, restaurants and so on. Um, so, yeah, we are kind of grasping in the dark here in terms of trying to figure out the um, trying to apply what legal precedents there are and trying to speculate where there's really no real legal precedent, um, And so that just goes back to my previous point, that we need to sort of think through this carefully and not have kind of a knee-jerk reaction where we say, oh, are there, this implicates the right to privacy, therefore it's a no-go area. That, that we, we need to think more deeply about this because, um, because it's, it's quite possible we could have another wave of COVID and uh, I think people have just reached the end of their patients with uh, these restrictions on indoor gathering.
1: Mm-hmm. and there 's you know there 's different ways I guess that this could be applied i mean one one side of it would be uh, a mandate from government that you know for example, all nightclubs as they 're doing in the u k uh, must require proof of vaccination versus individual businesses choosing to do this. i mean we had a conversation recently about uh, the the concert and music industry, and a lot of venues are you know, having difficulty even getting insurance. And this is maybe going to be something that, that some of these venues are going to have to explore just based on some of the realities they're, they're facing as concert venues. So does it pose different legal ramifications if it's, you know, government mandating it or if it's a, a nightclub deciding on its own that, look, we want to keep people safe, we want to ensure that, you know, we, we can have a, an insured venue, so we're going to require it on our own.
0: Yeah, it certainly does have uh, different legal implications. I mean, as you know, that the charter only applies to government actions. So, if private entities doing this on their own wouldn't wouldn't feel the same pressure, really, to accommodate sort of religious groups who don't want to be backed in for that reason. Um, so, there's that dimension there, and and the the kind of logic of some of the privacy protections that apply to the private sector are different than those applying to the uh, the public sector. Um, and part of the, our objective in sort of asking governments to the paper from City is it's kind of making the case that we need to talk more deeply about what government can do here. And part of our reason is that we think it would be better to have a kind of government level policy that would apply across the board, rather than this kind of Wild West scenario where individual companies would be coming up with their own passport systems and, and who knows what, how the, respectful they would be of privacy and so on, what information they'd be collecting. We can actually do this a lot more safely if governments would just get, sort of get their hands around the problem.
1: I think we we sort of hope that it's not going to be required that, you know, if if all goes well and enough Canadians get vaccinated, a lot of this becomes a moot point. But we we can't rely on that, right? I think part of the the argument you just alluded to is that we need to sort of plan for these alternate scenarios.
0: Yeah, I think that's just another very important point that we, so in my province of Ontario here, we've got these targets of 75% of people having double doses and 80% having single doses. And then the government is planning to lift all restrictions. And uh, from what we're seeing in, in other countries like Israel and the UK, they're, they're seeing rising levels of infection after having lifted these restrictions. And then Israel has just reactivated its green, green pass system. Uh, we, just need, we need these tools in our toolkits. Uh, we, need to, we don't have to use them necessarily immediately, but a province like Quebec, which is developing a vaccine passport system and having it available should there be another wave, that's just smart and, and uh, sort of um, forward-looking public policy.
1: Much more is mentioned, uh, cdhow.org, and I guess we'll we'll see where this all goes from here, but uh, we'll leave it there for now. Professor Thomas, appreciate your insight, and thanks for joining us here this afternoon. My pleasure. All the best. Uh, That is Brian Thomas, Senior Research Associate at the uh, C.D. Howe Institute, Adjunct Professor at the Center for Health, Law, Policy, and Ethics at the University of Ottawa, one of the authors of this report, that makes the case that if done right, this would at least conform with Canadian laws. There's still the politics of it, obviously, and you know, whether this is something policymakers should implement and whether Canadians are okay with this. I think at the moment, certainly the perception is in, in Alberta that you know, things are going well. What's what's the point? What's the need for this? It's going to come up. It's going to come up. I think we, we need to brace for the fact that this is going to inevitably be a factor. To me, one of the the obvious areas, and I and, and I know... Probably the the teams don't want to be addressing this yet, don't want to have to go down that path. But you look to, uh, you know, the upcoming NHL season, where are things going to be come fall and winter? What are going to be some of the issues around having 18,000, 20,000 people at an indoor event? If, say, for example, cases are are arising. So to me, that seems like something obvious, uh, NHL games. The team's requiring either proof of vaccination or to get a negative test. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see that. And I mentioned the point about the concert industry. I spoke recently with uh, broadcaster, music writer uh, Alan Cross. He says a lot of concert venues are having a whole lot of trouble, you know, getting back on their feet and getting insurance and being able to, to start doing shows again. This may be one way around that. And it's interesting timing today as we talk about whether a Cold War exists between China and the West. Canada joining uh, with the US and blaming China, pointing a finger of blame at China for that Microsoft hack earlier this year. Uh, report today, or uh, rather, tweet today uh, from Mark Garneau, Canada's uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs. Today, Canada joins its allies in identifying the People's Republic of China's state-backed actors for the unprecedented and indiscriminate exploitation of Microsoft Exchange servers. And it's kind of an example of what we're talking about here, China's belligerence, Uh, what China's uh, activities have been, you know, in this realm or when it comes to the two Michaels, when it comes to the situation within their own country as it pertains to uh, Uyghurs, etc., So if indeed something akin to a Cold War exists, to me it seems pretty reasonable and rational to point the finger of blame at China. It's interesting, there was a letter recently sent to the American president, a total of 40 environmental groups and other advocacy groups, calling on the U.S. president to abandon the growing Cold War mentality driving the United States approach to China, an allegation that would also apply to Canada and other U.S. allies. So are we following a Cold War mentality here, or are we being unfair to China? Are we boxing in China? If we simply back off or back down, does that mean that everything is fine? Well, joining us to talk more about uh, some of these big questions and... Um, you know, whether a Cold War exists, who's to blame for it. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Balkan Devlin, uh, who's a senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute and adjunct research uh, professor at the Norman Patterson School for International Affairs at Carleton University. Balkan, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, and, and today, so as mentioned, I mean, you've got Canada standing with the U.S. and other countries uh, calling out China for this uh, Microsoft hack. So, you know, that, that's a pretty big deal. What did you make of that? Um, I think it's very important
3: um, that we do actually line up with our allies uh, on this particular issue. Finally, Canada has been a bit of, uh, you know, <laughs> lagging back um, when it comes to sort of highlighting the the Chinese aggression, uh, despite the fact that they are you know, they kidnapped and held you know, still holding hostage. Uh, to Michaels and engage in all sorts of um, subversion uh, within the country, um, uh, including, you know, against uh, Canadian citizens. But I'm, I'm glad to see that, uh, you know, we do end up lining with, with the U.S., with U.K., with Europe. A European Union made a, uh, the same um, statement, which is quite uh, unique. Uh, they tend to avoid making direct accusations, and this was very clear. So um, I think it is a sign that uh, the West broadly is, is waking up to the, um, uh, the, the threat and the challenge that China poses and that needs to be called out. And that requires um, unity and solidarity within the liberal democratic countries um, uh, standing together. So I think it's a, it's a, very, important, um, a very important step uh, towards that area.
1: Well, and I mean, again, it, it speaks to as you say, China's aggression, China's belligerence. So, if if there is tension between China and Canada, China and the U.S., China and the West, I mean, does does that constitute a cold war in your view? First of all, uh, I mean, we do reach uh, reach
3: back in history to grab these terms because it makes it you know easier to understand perhaps the development, um, but you know. The, Frankly, the, the, the world is not the world of 1950s and 60s. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily call it a new Cold War in the sense of armies being lined up in, in the center of Europe or in this case, uh, in, in, in the pacific and you know, you know, hundreds or you know, thousands of uh, nuclear weapons pointed uh, against each other. It's a different world. But um, having said that, I think it's quite clear um, for for some of us for several years, but increasingly for for many uh, in Canada and elsewhere, that we are um, heading towards a much more defined competition uh, between two types of systems: you know, liberal democracies on the one hand, and authoritarian uh, authoritarian states on the other hand. You know, led by by China, but also uh, Russia as well. Um, so in essence, yes, we are moving towards that sort of a, a confrontation. Um, and that would be the defining uh, nature of international politics in the next uh, next decade um but you know sort of uh, self legislation of as if the other party have no um, sort of uh, agency in this and it is yeah. because whatever we do we are causing cold war is of course nonsense um the yeah, canada us our european allies would not be uh, making these statements and solidifying you know, support among each other if China were not you know, engaging in genocide against Uyghurs, suppressing democracy in Hong Kong, stealing uh, you know, intellectual property rights across the board, hacking our you know, systems, et cetera, et cetera, you know, threatening to invade Taiwan. You know, if those actions weren't there, we wouldn't be uh, needing to, to, to challenge them. So I think um, thinking that it is just because what we are doing, it's, it's leading to a new sort of uh, competition, global competition, a new Cold War. Uh, that's, that's just nonsense.
1: Yeah, so this letter to the uh, American president from these groups has mentioned. So it calls on the United States to uh, abandon this uh, Cold War mentality, they say. Uh, They call on the Biden administration and members of Congress to eschew the dominant antagonistic approach to U.S.-China relations and instead prioritize multilateralism, diplomacy and cooperation with China. So. It it really assumes the best of China here that that China wants diplomacy and cooperation and multilateralism and that the U.S. or the West is rejecting it. Does, does that seem based in reality at all to you?
3: No, not at all. Uh, my my colleague at the Institute, Michael Cole, had a very nice op-ed recently, calling the, the so that progressive line, environmentalist line, uh, naive. And he because he, he's a nice guy. Um, and at best, it can be described as a naive um, naive approach. Um, the, the academic term for the argument that we need to collaborate with China on climate change, that particular sentence, um, the academic term for it is that a profound bullshit, um, which is basically a statement that mm-hmm. looks profound at an initial uh, initial look. But, you know, 30 seconds reflection suggests that it is nothing of the sort. Um, and this argument that, you know, we, we need to sort of uh, turn a blind eye to, to Chinese aggression and suppression of human rights because we need to work with uh, climate change is it misses the point that there, there is a sort of two sides of the same coin. That China also needs to work with us to deal with the climate change because it's a global problem that China is much more vulnerable to the effects of, of climate change than rich uh, Western countries, that it is in their interest to deal with it, um, assuming that we have all the agency and China doesn't, and it is only in our interest, but not to the Chinese interest, to deal with the negative impact or effects of, of climate change. It, it, it misses the, completely misses the point. I mean, there are two options, right? So when you look at it, either the Chinese Communist Party believes that climate change is going to be harmful to their national interest, or they don't. If they believe it's going to be harmful, they will be taking action to control and mitigate that because it is in their national interest, regardless of how we deal with them in other domains. If they don't think that climate change will be harmful to them and their national interest, then they would just nod and smile and use this as an excuse, but don't follow through those commitments. In either case, it, it, it depends a lot on what the China, China, China would be doing. Tying this to all other sort of subversive uh, policies and aggressive policies um, to the Chinese, um, uh, Chinese Communist Party uh, and saying that we should just turn a blind eye because we need them in the climate change, completely misses this point that it is in their national interest also, to deal with it, regardless of how the relations go in you know, other domains. And we saw that during the Cold War, for example, with you guys to the nuclear weapons and, 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 and arms control agreements. We did engage with the Soviet Union to develop nuclear weapon, uh, non-proliferation 3T and others to deal with the, you know, with the threat of nuclear war, despite the fact that we were in a Cold War. So um, that, mm-hmm. that logic doesn't hold any water at all.
1: You're right. We're going to leave there. Much more to mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Professor Devlin, appreciate your insight on this. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. All right. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Balkan Devlin. He's a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, adjunct research professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. So, yeah, this, this needs to be called out. And, and, you know, it's easy enough to say that some of these groups are kind of a little bit on the fringe, code pink, friends of the earth, et cetera. But this really needs to be called out. Look, you know, we can, we can say that climate change is an important international issue. Maybe not everybody views it, you know, the same way in terms of its priority. But the idea that we can ignore everything else because we have to focus on this, I think is a dangerous argument. Further to that, the idea that, that China gets a pass here because this is an important issue just makes no sense. So the, the logic of this letter is that the U.S. should stop being mean to China uh, because we need to cooperate with China on climate change. If China wants to cooperate on climate change, there's nothing stopping them from doing so. So if if we're really to believe that China would cooperate on climate change, uh, but because we, we call them out on their aggression and belligerence, they, they feel bad, their feelings are hurt, and they can't cooperate on climate change, it's just...